Welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. This past weekend, I spent way more time in airports than I had ever hoped to. The winter weather that has taken our beloved city by storm, pun intended, of course had much to say about my travel plans and those of thousands of other folks flying into or out of Memphis. Now anyone who has been in airports in recent years know to expect a cacophony of sounds, sights, and smells. Nearly everywhere you look, there's a TV screen, or bright and color advertisements for some company promoting their goods and services. Music pipes in over the speakers, smells from restaurants and booths waft into our nose, and sometimes these are intentionally strengthened to pique our interest. Now, as curious creatures who have evolved to pay attention to new and different stimuli, That way we can better know our environment. These bids for our attention can easily turn into sensory overload. The fact is that in our 21st century age, where we devote our attention has become a tangible and profitable commodity. Views and clicks drive industries. Time spent reading, watching, listening, or simply scrolling opens up opportunities for advertisements, for more and more bids on our attention. Now, of course, that can mean a bid for our money, but it also might mean something deeper. We might think our attention, the mental energy we devote to observing observing and absorbing information, to be a minor thing. But as Matthew B. Crawford, writer and research fellow at the University of Virginia, writes in his book, The World Beyond Your Head, got my copy right here, our attention is actually something more intimate, personal, and even sacred, more than we might think. He explains that, quote, attention is the thing that is most one's own. In the normal course of things, we choose what to pay attention to. And in a very real sense, this determines what is real for us, what is actually present to our consciousness. Appropriations of our attention are then an especially intimate affair. What Crawford seems to say is that where we devote our attention says as much about what we do and how we spend our time as who we are, what is important to us, and who we wish to be in the world in relation to the world around us. Now, in the pre-modern world, our community and traditions were the primary guide to where we spend our attention. They provided the framework for what is worthy of our time and our attention. 
And they also, and it also provided steps, methods, recipes, procedures for how to go about paying our attention. Of course, with the modern world came freedom from the strictures of society and tradition. Rather than allowing external forces to determine our time and attention, the responsibility rested solely on us to determine what would guide our internal and external worlds. Now, I should have said, with modernity came freedom from the strictures of society. And I put freedom in quotations because this was indeed the hope. But in Crawford's estimation, this hope has become distorted in our world. For the original builders of the modern world, a world without oppressive traditional frameworks guiding us in what and how to think would lead to the unencumbered pursuit of individual individuality and each person finding purpose and fulfillment according to their own hopes, desires, preferences, and will. They envisioned a world like that of French philosopher René Descartes, one that is removed from personal experience and that is skeptical of any source of knowledge or wisdom beyond our own internal reason and skills of deduction. The great decision maker was not in an institution, but instead in an individual, and we would be set free from the strictures of old. But the truth is human beings do not live in a vacuum or sitting in a leather chair in a study completely divorced from the world around us. Our sense of self, our desires, our hopes and dreams are always shaped in some way by what we see and experience in the world. By being skeptical of the world outside of our heads, we have lost connection with it, allowing the old ways of connecting with this world, like skilled crafts, cooking, gardening, and others to be outsourced for the sake of convenience. Strangely, Crawford argues, our emphasis on individual autonomy has led to a fragmented sense of self. When we are merely passive consumers, existing and interacting with the world as disembodied minds, we lose what gives us identity and meaning. The solution that Crawford offers is a reconnection with these skilled practices, with these connections with physical tools uh, that help us interact with the world. Specifically, he talks about developing connections with the world outside of our heads that give us a more solid sense of identity and actually give us important tools of perception and understanding the world around us. In the book, he talks about skills like cooking, glass blowing, pipe organ maintenance, and a bunch of others that all center around the use of tools. And as he writes, I suggest, he suggests it is indeed things that can serve as a kind of authority for us by way of structuring our attention. Let's pause for a second. Now I know many of us see, might see a lot of what I just said as philosophical mumbo jumbo, and in a lot of ways it is. Just, and it's just as theoretical and detached as those floating heads that Crawford critiques so harshly in his book. But this core question of where are we devoting our attention 
isn't just a cultural or a philosophical issue. It's also a spiritual one. There's a reason why so many spiritual practices demand discipline of attention. Uh, the French philosopher Simone Weil once wrote, quote, Something in our soul has far more violent repugnance for true attention than the flesh has for bodily fatigue. This something is much more closely connected with evil than is the flesh. That is why every time that we really concentrate our attention, we destroy the evil in ourselves. Now, for many of us, thinking of spiritual things or even spiritual discipline might be amorphous, metaphorical, theoretical, but I think Crawford is right on the money in saying that physical objects can serve as invaluable tools in focusing our attention and in this process of crafting and building ourselves. This week, we are in Parashat Bo, part of the book of Exodus that tells the story of the eighth and ninth plagues, as well as preparing the Israelites for the tenth and really the most devastating plague, the death of the firstborn. It is in this portion that we find the first instructions of the Passover ritual teaching that this ritual will serve as a reminder to each generation in the future of God's redemption of our ancestors from slavery. The importance of maintaining this holiday in generations to come is reiterated multiple times, not just here in Exodus, but elsewhere in our sacred texts as well. Chapter 13, we read, And you shall explain to your child on that day, it is because of what Adonai did for me when I went free from Egypt. And familiar phrase for many of us, we read it each year on, on Passover around our Seder tables. And it goes on to say, And this shall serve for you as a sign upon your hand and as a reminder on your forehead. Let me say that again as a sign on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead. In order that, that the teaching of Adonai may be in your mouth, that with a mighty hand Adonai freed you from Egypt. As with any text in our sacred tradition, these verses lend themselves to many different interpretations. Most of us likely understand the, quote, sign upon your hand and reminder between your eyes as being metaphors teaching us to keep this moment of liberation at the forefront of our minds and guiding the actions of our hands. But of course, there are many different ways to interpret, and our ancestors of previous millennia also interpreted this verse a little bit more literally. And this is where we get the ritual practice of wrapping tefillin. Uh, in English, tefillin is translated as phylacteries. I really don't think that helps us understand what they are, but basically to fill in are leather boxes uh, that a person straps to uh, both your arm along your forearm, uh, as well as placing upon your head. And within those leather boxes attached to straps of leather are actual uh, inscribed pieces of Torah texts all of which describe or mention the exodus from Egypt. And all of this serves as a literal reminder 
in a way that we can literally keep this story as a sign upon our hand and a symbol before our eyes. Now, for many of us Reformed Jews, wrapping tefillin is not a very common, meaningful uh, ritual. There are a lot of different reasons for this. For one, tefillin, like many ritual practices, were traditionally exclusively prescribed for men and not women. And beyond this, many of our Reformed predecessors had an aversion to the use of physical ritual objects. Some viewed it as a form of idolatry, that we were using these objects as, or treating these objects as the object of our devotion, uh, rather than focusing on these larger ideals and values that are truly the, the important element of our tradition. And for them, Judaism was a religion of the head and the heart, not something that was uh, as much physical. And, and in many ways, they were guided by these modern thinkers in living within the world of the, theor of the metaphorical, living in the world uh, of the floating head and not being as connected physically with our, our physical world. And so for many of these reasons, a lot of ritual objects, including uh, this talit that I'm wearing right now, uh, fell out of fashion in Reformed communities. And there's really good reason why. Uh, they wanted to, to restrict uh, people's emphasis on these physical objects so that they could really connect with what those physical objects are reminders of and pay attention to uh, these larger ideas um, rather than just getting too wrapped up in the details of how many times you tie the seat seat or how many times you wrap the tefillin around your arm. But I do think that Crawford, and in many ways the modern circumstances we find ourselves in, can offer a different way of thinking about this. Physical objects might not be magical or mystical or some kind of ancient technology, but they are valuable tools that allow, that can enable us to direct and focus our attention, connecting us with the physical world and bridging that with the, with the, with the spiritual world. Ritual items, not only a kippah, a talit, tefillin, but also our candles, uh, our mezuzot, our mezuzahs that adorn our many, uh, the frames of our, our, the frames of the doors of our homes are physical reminders that embody our practice, that embody the values and the stories of our people. Some of it is really hard to substitute. It's hard to substitute the gleaming light of, of Shabbat candles. And physical reminders, as anyone who writes down little post-it notes or does anything physical to remind them of something um, that resides in the sphere of metaphor or the theoretical, can be really, really powerful. At the end of the day, we are not just spiritual beings. We are not just heads floating out in the ether. We are physical, and we need physical objects that help pin us and help connect us with our world because 
our Jewish tradition emphasizes that the physical bodies that we have, the physical world that we inhabit are not bad things. They're not deceptive things, but that they are holy and sacred things and simply part of our soul's journey through this life. And so on this Shabbat, I hope that we can consider not just think, but also uh, embody what it means to devote our attention to things. I hope that we can reflect upon how we engage with the world around us and how we embody those core ideals and those things that we find most precious in our lives. Ken Yehiratzon, may it be God's will. Let us say together, Amen. Shabbat Shalom.